Welcome once again to Wrestling Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. We're available online to the masses who can listen live at RadioNorthland.org. You can check us out on TuneIn as well. That's a nice free app. You can check all three of our stations on there. But you can check out Wrestling Memories live and in the moment. And if you missed it, whatever was the reason, if you have to go back and like try to figure out how to listen to it, don't worry. Because Encore presentations are available. The whole library, the kit and caboodle, is available at RadioNorthland.org. So if you want to go back to almost, oh, it's been about eight years. I think we're in our ninth season here of Wrestling Memories then and now. Good stuff. Some legends who are not with us anymore are featured on there. Oh, you can hear from Billy Robbins, interviews with Billy Robinson. Uh, also, uh, Nick Bockwinkle is on there. Dick Byer, the Destroyer, Dr. X. Lots of great stuff on RadioNorthland.org. Just check out Wrestling Memories then and now it's uh, really cool here i'm flying solo this week uh, no no mike mccurdy he's uh, down in the uh, uh, in the mobile studio working on something here for next week but just because uh, he, he's not here doesn't mean we're going to have a, a lackluster edition of the program this we're going to focus uh, this time around on a, a fine wrestler who came out of the very state that for which we're recording minnesota he uh, spent some time with eddie sharkey in pro wrestling america he ended up in wcw he has worked countless indies in his uh, pro wrestling career. Uh, this was the gentleman who was uh, from originally up, up for, uh, born and came from the Red Lake Reservation in Minnesota. So definitely uh, we could talk about uh, his road to finding his way into pro wrestling, his life growing up, uh, what he's up to today. There's lots of good stories. In fact, uh, before we hit record on this today, we were getting into some pretty good ones as well about a couple of former Wrestling Memories uh, guests. But we want to hear his story and it's going to be a good one. I have a feeling. Uh, let's welcome the former Pro Wrestling America World Heavyweight Champion, the Thunderblood, Mr. Charlie Norris. Charlie, it's so nice to finally be able to have you on here on Wrestling Memories then and now. Uh, you're, Like I said, you're a fine Minnesota wrestler uh, through the years, man. It's just good to have you on. I appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. Yes, and thank you uh, for uh, being available. Again, uh, we, we got connected online. In fact, before we get into the talk about uh, your run in pro wrestling, uh, one of your uh, fellow uh, Matt Warriors that you uh, you worked with uh, when you were with Eddie Sharkey in Pro Wrestling America was a guy we had on the program here about, uh, oh, it's been almost two years now. And he originally came from uh, Grand Forks, East Grand Forks area, not too far of a drive from where we're recording today. I'm talking about Randy Gust or Randy Gust. Gusto. He uh, sent me a message uh, on the phone. I wasn't able to talk with him uh, th this time around, but he sent a message saying, you know what? You guys should really get in touch with Charlie Norris, man. This this guy has a great story to tell. I know you know who he is from uh, his time in the Minnesota Indies, also on WCW. Heck, I even remember when he worked with Condello up in Winnipeg. But anyway, he recommended I get in touch with you, and I'm so glad that uh, we were able to connect online. There's, also, there's lots of good things that can happen on social media amidst all of the uh who what side are you on clutter that is today it's always so nice to be able to connect with somebody and i connected with uh, charlie here and i uh, like i said randy gust is our, our kind of our conduit our man in the middle when i say that name uh, what does that bring back to you i mean you had some good uh, battles with randy uh, down there for eddie oh man he was great he was, he was like wrestling a big bear you know he, he, he was a uh North Dakota state all American and that's that's hard to do in any in any weight but he was a heavyweight all American you know so he was he was he was legit in the ring but I mean I remember hitting him one time in the back of the head he had my left leg and I I, I was gonna we planned to kick it I was gonna kick him in the back <laughs> I kicked him back of the head and he flew out of the ring and did, did a back I mean a really for real flip and I I wish I had those old PWA tapes, man. That's where I that's where I cut my teeth, you know. Forty five minutes we went, you know, a few times and we just we, we he's just a good good guy, good worker. I mean, had a lot of fun together. This is great he's a great friend still. I talked to him this morning. Oh, well, that's really great. I think one of these days, uh, you know, uh, you know, depending on how well we get uh, this interview uh, done, we should probably work on maybe getting something together with you, the two of you to uh, come on the program and chat. Uh, we could work out a time with Randy, with his schedule, and then hopefully with yours, yeah. because I think it would be fun. Because all I would really, I think with you guys, all I would really need to do is just throw up a, a scenario or a quick question and just kind of sit back and let you guys do the do the talking and the in the heavy lifting. Because I know that uh, once you get two wrestlers 
who were in the trenches together uh, at that period of time. Uh, you guys could probably get some good stories in there, too, about not only your uh, working together, but some of the guys that were in the, those locker rooms uh, for, for Eddie, uh, Eddie Sharkey uh, we're talking about during those Pro Wrestling America days. A lot, of, a lot of great guys, a lot of tough guys. Eddie don't mess around with, with you know, if you you got to be pretty tough to get through his school and bread ring, and so I went to both. And Eddie's, I had a chance meeting with Eddie, and I was, uh, you know, a couple of weeks later, I was training, and, man, it was it was, uh, it was was harder than two weeks, football and basketball, all that I did prior to that. You know, I was, I've always been an athlete, I'm 6'6". Um, I'm, right now I'm 235 pounds, I'm pretty lean. I used to be 300, 290, 280, whatever. If I'd go to Japan, I'd go to, I'd lose weight, 20, 270, 260. Because over there, it's like, you got to go, man, you know. But, um, yeah, Randy's, uh, I love I love Red Tyler. I, I mean, I remember all these guys, man. I remember, there's so many stories with the hater. Oh, he no. used to really go at it, man. I mean, really, for real, you know, because he's so tough, you know. Yeah, and you guys uh, not only did your thing, but I mean, uh, in those pro wrestling America cards in, in the late '80s into the early '90s, I mean, I, I you know you always hear when somebody mentions that that that, that era of wrestling, they also talk about you know like Jerry Lynn and and Sean Waltman yeah. when they were there too. I Sean mean, Waltman, yeah, I yeah, mean, they were there. Sean was one tough kid, man. Like like I said, Eddie sent it out. You know, that you come to practice or wrestling school there, and we learned on a little mat on the floor how to take backdrops and you know body slams and there was no room for air you know so you learned how to first day of wrestling school you got to stand straight up with and then you got to fall backwards you know i'd never done that before and that's a lot of guys got sinned out pretty you know you're either you're tough or you're not you know so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and jerry lynn was one of the greatest of all time you know man sean you know he he was part of changing wrestling history you know the the him in the road doggy is a good buddy of mine too, Brian Armstrong. And I want to mention his daddy passed away yesterday. Uh, the bullet Bob, bullet Bob Armstrong, me and Brad Armstrong were great friends down there in Georgia. And I got to stay at bullets house and his wife in Pensacola. And so I've been around a little bit. It's not only my WCW thing, you know, what happened there, but it's, I had a good, I had a good career, man, you know? Well, yeah, just looking through it, I mean, in getting refreshed uh, for the interview today, I just I was amazed at some of the stuff and some of the stops that you made through your career. And uh, we kind of want to get into that a little bit. But before we get into that, I want to just get into your pre-pro wrestling days. Uh, could you talk a little bit about, I mean, you, you're you from the Red Lake Reservation. Could you talk a little bit about growing up on the reservation, some of the things that uh, you, you, you experienced growing up, and how athletics kind of uh, came into your life as far as sports and how that played a role in, in shaping you growing up uh well let's see my first memories of red lake was i was in a, they call it a baby swing and my my um we were staying with my my mom my grandma i should say my grandma uh, mary Badu, out in big stone western west west of uh, red lake there about eight miles and a little two-room tar paper shack and i remember i was my maybe four maybe I don't know, four or five, maybe three. I was big anyways. I was barely fit in that swing, but she was singing me to sleep and, you know, and Indian songs. And I remember that, the fire crackling the wood. And, um, you know, we I didn't know we didn't have, uh, you know, everything. And that, I never needed a lot of stuff, materialistic stuff. If I had a bike, you know, an old bike with a wagon or something, I was happy, man. I was running the woods and fish and, and wrestle my cousins who were, bigger and stronger than me at the time and you know and that that's where my first thing is my brother Arn, my sister linda she you know if there's one drop of pee on the toilet she'd she'd pull my hair and i'd get punched up even if I, my dad did it or not or whoever i'd get the blame and i don't know so that was my first my <laughs> my first experiences with i loved i just love to be physical and i was bullied at an early age you know and really bad on on in the school up there and, and, um, and throughout Catholic school and Catholic, you know, all that stuff. And mm-hmm. I just never fought back. And I you know one day I said, you know, I'm, I'm tired of this. I, I started playing football and basketball and that changed everything. I could do do everything anybody else could and better, you know, I was a natural. <laughs> <laughs> When did you really first hit your first growth spurt? I mean, cause you were, you're, you're not exactly a shorty by any means. 
<laughs> I never realized that until I look in like a picture or a mirror if I'm standing by someone. I don't know how big I am really. Well, I got some scars on my head from hitting my head on the in Japan at the little bitty doorways. I actually did, you know, bled a few times, hit the doors, and they're so small there. But from um, I was in tenth grade. We moved down here from the reservation. Got got um come down here. Um, which is a blessing, you know, at the time for us kids, because I got a sister who's a doctor, and they're all very successful. Um, whatever we chose to do, we did it and succeeded. And I was going to be a pro wrestler since the age of five. A lady in Chicago used to babysit me. I was born in Chicago, actually. And um, oh, wow. um, old lady, old lady, old bell, they called her, and she said, she told my mom one. And I just caught this. I, she wasn't telling me, and I, she told my mom, she said, one day he's going to be a pro wrestler. And I got pictures of me when I was seven, eight years old with my own championship belt on, posing, and, you know, it's, it's like, this is what I was going to do. It was, I was destined to do this. This is what I was going to do my whole life, you know. I, I told people in there, whatever, you ain't going to do that, whatever. I'm like, well, okay. But I always knew what, I always knew I was going to do this. It's know? always good to prove them wrong, too. But, but I, about 10th grade, I'm sorry, I'm 10th grade, I was six foot, almost six foot two, and I was a really heavy kid. I was a pretty husky kid, um, two, about 275 maybe. And I was a pretty good football player. And, you know, I wanted to tear someone's head off out there because this is where I let my aggression out. You know, I, I have a lot of adrenaline still to this day. I think I'm 21 years old, but my body tells me different, <laughs> you know. But, yeah, I from a basketball coach and um, at the last day of school at Minneapolis South High, he said, I asked, I went up to him, Eric Magdans, he played for the Minnesota Gophers, great coach, great, wonderful inspiration in my life. And I went up to him and I said, what do I got to do to make the team next year? He said, lose 50 pounds this summer. Not only did I lose 50 pounds, I grew to be 6'5". By then I was 17, I think, something more than I, 16, 17. Then I grew another inch when I was the, my senior year. I grew another inch. I grew three inches in two years, my height. And then I leaned up. I lost 70 pounds, actually. Then I, you know, I was, was about 225 in high school. I was a really pretty good player. And we we were a good team. And um, I wish I would have took basketball more serious when I was younger. I was more of a football guy. But that's how, that's how I got into the sports, and I did well, and I, I graduated high school and went on to play some college basketball down in uh, Lawrence, Kansas, Haskell Junior College. And um, I was even telling people there, you know, I'm going to be a wrestler someday. And they'd look at me like I was crazy, you know. So, <laughs> well, you... yeah, that's <laughs> – then let's see, how old was I when I met Eddie? I was 20 – 24, 25, maybe. So when did that all happen? You talked about the Eddie meeting Eddie. So paint the picture about this first meeting with Eddie Sharkey, how that all went down. Uh, we uh, Let's see. Uh, a friend of mine, Max Lusher, he, um, he worked he was worked at the Indian Center with me, and he knew Eddie from somewhere. And, he, and I told him, I, you know, I said, I want to get into the wrestling business. And um, I was looking at the schools around here and everything, and then he, he brought, all of a sudden Eddie shows up there one day, and he, you know this guy trained the Road Warriors and Nikita Koloff and Jesse. It goes on and on and on, and um, I'm like, really? And he said, Yeah, we want you to come to school, wrestling school. So I did. I went to the school and I I did really well. And then um, for some reason I got blood clots in my legs, and I had to take a year off right off the bat. You know, and it's like, man, this is this is this is hard. This is hard. I, I want to do this bad. So I kept studying tapes and um, talking with Eddie every day, meeting him for coffee every day and learning, learning everything I could from him. He was always right about everything. Let's see. No, then, uh, then after that, I went to the wrestling school and then I went back to the school again. And um, it was like this mat and we didn't have no spring in the middle. It's like landing on steel almost with a little thin cushion and then the ring. I mean, you learn how to take your bumps mm -hmm. or you get hurt. <laughs> so well, all those guys were good bump takers. All, all the guys were, you learn, you have to be to, to learn. I mean, you know, you gotta be, it's like going to the, the steel factory or something, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy. It's not for everybody. And Eddie, just when I talked to him last week, he said, you got to be kind of mentally ill to do, what we what we did you know it's true it really is something's wrong with us man 
Now, how long did it uh, did your training take? As far as like, how long? What what, what kind of time frame was it before you got into the ring? And uh, could you talk a little bit about that first time getting in and, and actually wow. uh, applying your trade, man? Because I mean, that could be a real daunting <laughs> task. I mean, to get those early butterflies, that first first big thing. Oh man, kid me. Oh man, it was um, it was at the Indian Center in South Minneapolis. And Eddie kept saying, "Come on to the show. You can referee a show." And I didn't. I, I didn't show up. I was, you know. So after that eight months off of these blood class, I went right back in, and he put me right in the ring right right away. Like three weeks later, my first match after being with him for like eight, you know nine eight months, talking to him, still engaged in everything. And I was a quick learner, and I that night there was I don't know 800 people at the Indian Center, which I thought was man, this place should be sold out. This is wrestling, man, you know, and in the, in the right in the hood of Minneapolis, South Minneapolis, and where I grew up a lot in my early years. And I'm like, geez, there should be more people here. He said, Are you kidding me? This is like, are you kidding me? He said, This is great. This is great. So I'm in the office there. I had my I was in the office talking with some people, and he comes up to me. So you ready? And I was scared to death. I was oh man, I was scared. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really scary. But I worked with a kid named Matt Derringer, and it was great. Brad Ringens was on the show. Everybody was watching me, and and they all were congratulating me good. And I'm like, God, that just sucked, man. But I guess I did pretty good, you know, because I was. He always put me in the main events. Ever, ever, you know, all every time we had a show, I was always have to be the last match. I'm like, Eddie, can I please be in the second, first, second, third match? And he said, That's exactly what Billy Redclaw said. And I'm like, Whoa. <laughs> so yeah, um, I always have to wait it out till the last match. And he wants you there two hours prior to the show beginning. And I'm like, What are we gonna do? But so you have to sit around and talk with the guys, you know. So and, you, um, so who was in that lock? Who, who was in that locker room around that that time when you were first starting to cut your teeth? You mentioned Brad Rangans, uh, uh, again Larry another Cameron, Larry Cameron. I don't know if you're familiar with oh, him. Oh, yeah, yeah. Monster. I I actually I saw like pro wrestling. Uh, Eddie brought a show up here uh, in October 1987 to Three River Falls, and I remember this uh, very well because it was a storm that night. It was the uh, game six of the World Series that the Minnesota Twins were in for the first time. They won big, but there was a storm, so the the ring didn't get up until like an hour late or whatever it was. And so we sat and <laughs> watched. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's so typical indie, but I mean, was, this was my second pro wrestling show I attended. And uh, I remember uh, Tom Burton, I think it was, was the guy setting up the ring. I remember. Yeah. I remember, um, gosh, Dale Gagner was was involved with it. Larry Cameron, I when I saw Larry Cameron there for the first time, and I thought, man, this guy could have just came off the the NFL football fields. He was so big and so so huge. I mean, I remember seeing him. I remember seeing Tom Zink. I remember seeing uh, Ricky Rice, uh, Tommy Jammer, I uh, Johnny Love. Johnny uh, yeah, yeah, I'm bringing up all kinds of names here. Johnny Ustinov was my second and third matches. And I was so green still, and I, you know, he took so good care of me in Tijuana Con. But remember, did you see Soul that Soul Daddy? Oh yeah, but I actually saw Soul Dad at an AWA house show that summer. Uh, was uh-huh. when him and Boris uh, Boris Zukov. It was just when they became the tag team champions. They wrestled in a six man match with Kurt Hennig, who was just the became the AWA champion. Just became a fresh heel against here. Here here's the main of their opponents. That six man. It was Wahoo McDaniel. DJ Peterson and the other booker at the time, Ray the Crippler Stevens. So yeah, they wow. were the main event at this gymnasium in Roseau. They played up to a packed house. And man, I mean, I think about the star power at that time. I mean, when you got Wahoo and Ray, along with DJ Peterson, who left us way too soon against Soul oh, Daddy, uh, Boris, and Kurt, another one who left us way too soon. Yeah. Knew them all very well. Very well. And that's what hurts about looking at some of my old pictures and some of my old. Wrestling tapes. I mean, Z-Man teamed up well in the AWF. We were in Atlanta together for a couple of years and road partners. And, you know, what a great friend. And, you know, he just, he left us too soon, you know. But, man, what a what a card that must have been. Huh? Kurt was a good buddy. And, man, he was really fun to hang out with, you know. Yeah, it's, it's sad because you think, man, these guys, they only lived in the, you know, 40s. And Tom was like my age, maybe a little older, a couple of years. But um, man, it's hard to hard to think about because um, 
we're uh, right now we're um, Big Soul Dad works. He works at the uh, hospital over here in Robbinsdale, and I can't, we were talking last week. You know, we talk a few times a year, maybe five, six, and uh, he seen my match with Tom Zink. I posted on there. Me and Tom teamed up against uh, I forget now Hercules. I don't know somebody, but um. He said, poor Tom died here where he works. He's been working there for like 30 years at this hospital of security. And he said, poor Tom died here, and I had to take him to the morgue. So that was, you know, I was like, oh, man, I, you know. Yeah. I didn't know that, you know. And that, they were good buddies. And we all, all the guys, we, we looked out for each other in, in the ring. And, yeah, it's, it's, that's hard. That's hard about the business. It's, it's the guys, you become self-destructive, you know, as you go on, you you. Every night after night, you want, you want to take the best bumps. You want to hit harder. You want to get slammed harder, slam harder, whatever. Well, but, yeah, uh, because, yeah, you you get caught up, man. Yeah, and you know, and it's pro wrestling is just one of those things that doesn't really have an off season, especially at that time when you guys no. were, were playing so many dates and stuff. It's a combination of uh, being in a professional sport along with being in a rock, like a, being in a rock band or going to put on exactly. a rock concert. And I mean, with no time off, I mean. You know, it, it it was always sad to see these people go so young, but then you kind of get to you know thinking you know the the schedules that you guys led. I mean, oh, I mean, how could you not give in to some of the temptations just to kind of keep distract your body from from the pain and and just the, the trips you had to take up and down the road and the early get ups and the, all of that. I mean, that's got to wear on you. The travel and all of that it makes your person probably a little more susceptible to to the vices of the road. Oh yeah. It's- you know, you go through the rainstorms, and you got a you got a full time job back home because there's not enough work. When wrestling, you got to go back to work the next morning. You got to drive to Winnipeg and drive back the same day. So yeah, that's cutting your teeth for a hundred dollars, and that's how you pay your dues. And the guys know that you don't just come strutting in and say I'm the superstar. No, you gotta you gotta do it like everybody else did, you know. And it's not easy. It's not driving to Des Moines for a hundred dollars and coming back, you know, hundred fifty dollars, two hundred dollars. It depends where you were on the card. All over Iowa. I think I think every state in Minnesota. I think I wrestled at every fair, every block party, everything, and it's a lot of fun. I mean, you know, it's a lot of fun actually. After you learn what you're doing, you're not killing yourself so much. But then you hit the road of the big time company, and then it gets then it's on. Then you know, I wrestled Chris Benoit one time, 17 out of 19 days, and man, he was he was the best ever and ever I've ever wrestled him and Bobby Eaton and. I'll say that about all the guys, but for Chris Benoit, me and his matches, if they would have showed them on TV, man. Wow. That was the only time I've ever seen anywhere the boys were giving us a standing ovation. We got back to the um, through the curtains after the match. And, I mean, Rick Rude was standing up clapping. I mean, Hawk and um, Paul Orndorff and Flair, all them guys. And I'm like, wow, these guys are, what? I said, it's all Chris, man. It, it, he did it all, you know, and he did. Was, he was that doggone good. And, it's too bad what happened to him because I knew him very well and, and we kept in touch, you know. For the final two years of his life, we didn't we didn't talk, but yeah, yeah that's not the person I knew, you know. Whatever happened there, so mm-hmm. I want to talk we, about we roomed, we roomed together, we rode it together, we stayed up all night talking, staring at the uh-huh. ceiling. So I wanted to say that that he wasn't he had brain damage. You watch any of his matches from Japan with anybody over there, he was man. This kid could go, boy. I want to talk a little bit about uh, some of. I mean, we'll get back to the a little bit of your early days because this is kind of where I first saw you wrestle. And uh, this was kind of a, a shot that you took. You mentioned uh, the travel, uh, of course, around the state of Minnesota, around the, you know the Midwest. But one of your earliest shots was uh, working for a guy who, uh, who, in the past, a few years prior, had a working relationship with Eddie Sharkey. I want to talk about how you ended up in Winnipeg in, at Club Taboo. Working TV tapings for Tony Candelo. Now I've had Tony on the program before, and there's never a dull moment with Tony. But I want to talk about <laughs> you know getting involved with with Candelo's uh, promotion, the West Four Wrestling Associate Alliance, because that was one of the shows that we would get every Sunday on one of the Winnipeg channels that we had uh, on our cable system back home. And I remember <laughs> this, but yeah, I'll talk about because Tony Candelo is and Winnipeg is just an interesting town altogether with its own wrestling history. But I want to talk about how you got up there and working for Tony and uh you know what was that experience like for you it was a long drive um I think I went up there with 
Baron one time, Baron von Raschke for a house show somewhere in Canada. It was a long ways anyway. Good you good another good great guy that you know, just been a big inspiration in my life. Nicest guy ever. But um man, Tony Gandello, I I remember how he looks now. I I didn't know him, I didn't know anything back then. I didn't know him going to Winnipeg. I and that's how um like I said, that was like my sixth, seventh, eighth matches. I was like I was beyond green. I was up there. I worked with Tom Burton, and we worked out in the wrestling school together. So he was kind of mad he didn't, he wasn't going to win. But hey, I didn't know any. I didn't care. You know, I didn't know any better. So I, I won, and and um, that's how I got to meet Bret Hart. Is uh, he came up to me one time. He said, "Hey, I seen you on uh, that Candelo show, man, a few years ago, man." He said, "My dad says I look just, we look like brothers." I'm like, "Really? <laughs> that's a compliment, man." But I was, you know. He's a good dude, but yeah. So it was all over Canada. I didn't know that. I thought it was not, you know, Winnipeg. Yeah, yeah. They had it on TSN. I mean, uh, not just you know outside of the Winnipeg market, and that covered basically all of Canada. So what a chance mm-hmm. viewing uh, by by the Hart family, and that's that, that's that's no small thing to get complimented by a family yeah. and, and a guy like Brett, who is just such. A- look like him, hell, man. You know, this guy's this guy's one of the greatest maybe in the top three ever. Oh, absolutely. Cool. I mean, from his time, you know, in, in WWE, WWF, uh, WCW, and even you watch some of that stuff he did uh, working for his dad in Calgary. I mean, Calgary, Stampede. Oh, oh that is uh, some great wrestling. I mean, good Lord. Uh, they had they had a good thing for a while there, and uh, I remember uh, Stampede being a kind of a, a feeding territory and having a, some sort of working arrangement with, with Eddie around the end of Stampede's closing because... Uh, you, we mentioned Larry Cameron. He was one of the, their last heavyweight champion over in mm-hmm. Calgary. And also Ricky Rice worked over there. Tijo Khan ended up over there. Did you ever hear anything about uh, any opportunities to go to Calgary in those yeah, last days? I had an opportunity to go there, and I was working full-time here, and I was going to school. And Eddie said, you know, it ain't worth it. I, I don't think you should go. And, you know, looking back now, I, I kind of, I kind of glad I didn't go because I heard some of the horror stories that, man, like Larry told me one time, and actually Davey Boy Smith was in the same van with him. Tommy Ferrer was there too and for, oh, yeah, right. for a little while. And <laughs> um, somehow some hit their windshield and it was like 40 below and they're in the middle of nowhere. And they had to drive like eight hours like that, freezing cold, you know, freezing. The whole windshield was gone. And um, I don't know what they hit. They hit something, a deer maybe, or I don't know what it was. But, you know, I heard that from a couple people that the long trips. Benoit was there. And, um, Dynamite Kid was oh, sure. there. Um, Brian Pillman. Um, Brian Pillman, yeah, exactly. Everybody went, went to that basement at Stu Hart's house, which is world famous. Uh, Stu would stretch you and, you know, show you all the all, everything. And that's the, in his own basement. There, that's a lot of superstars came out of there. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, you want to think about all the decades of guys that went up through uh, Calgary yeah. and ended up at Hart House. I mean, there's yeah. legends. I mean, I've talked with Bruce a couple of times, and he's told some stories from about superstar Billy Graham even getting up down yeah. there in the in the dungeon. I mean, other yeah. guys. I mean, Stu even <laughs> towards the end in his 80s. With, you know, you'd still be a little, even some of the wrestlers of, of the time were still leery about letting him put him in a hold because even oh. even towards the end because he was just a. Hey, he yeah. was definitely uh, the ultimate uh, as far as stretchers go. Yeah, he was, man. All those guys got stretched. Um, you know, that's wow. What a place to learn, though. You know, with them, with that, with that generation of guys. I was a little younger than that, but I did have an opportunity to go in nineteen ninety. I think it was. I was. I had a good job. I was working for Greyhound, and I was at. You know, I was like, man, Ed, I don't know, man, because they don't pay that good, and. I got to be that far from home, you know, and that's this. I don't, I hear a lot of stories. I don't think I'd like, he said, no, don't go, don't go. You yeah. He probably didn't want you to get starved out there too. I mean, because the com- the company was really at on its last legs too. And exactly, there was yeah. a threat of closure, you know, and finally it just kind of, the television stopped, all of that stopped. And, you know, just unfortunate because there was such a great history of that in that company, not only of the Hart family, but some of the guys, their relationship with Japanese wrestlers, uh, some inter- more international stars and stuff. They did very cool things uh, in very innovative, ahead of their time stuff 
up there in, in Calgary. But you were you had your own thing. You had your job, but you were also working. Like I mentioned, you were working pro wrestling America. You were you yeah. know cutting your teeth. You were working with guys. You know, you mentioned uh, you know a guy that I would would love to see. Wonder what he's up to these days. Is a, a guy that you mentioned with soul worked with soul that we're talking about, and I saw him work a, a, an AWA spot show. Was Tijo Khan? I remember my first uh, thing uh, hearing about Tijo and seeing Tijo was when he worked down uh, for Crockett in the uh, mid to late nineteen eighties with Paul Jones. But what do you rem- what are your memories of working with Tijo? Because he did have such a great gimmick, and he was just so mysterious. But and he's even more mysterious now because a lot of people uh, haven't really heard from him in recent years. But what can you remember from T- about Tijo Khan? Well, he's he was the first guy. I don't know, it must have been like my second year in the business. Oh, God, was it 91, maybe, 92? And 91, yeah, around in there. Anyways, uh, I worked with him in, um, uh, at the Indian Center down here. We had a whole bunch of kids there, man. There was, I don't know, a thousand kids, native kids there. And I'd go out and give out free tickets to all the kids in the community and, you know, just come on down and check it out. And... I beat Tijo that night, and the ring got stormed by all these kids. I got a picture of it my first time. I'm holding up the belt, and I'm, I'm, I am I look so young. I was young, actually. But, yeah, he was a great guy. He's, he's passed on now, I, I've, I've heard. you know, I, I don't know the details of it, but, yeah, he was just he was wonderful, man. He, he, he really took care of me in the ring. You know, he really knew what he was doing. You know, I, I was maybe a quarter of the way there at the time, and, Tom, his name was Tom, T-Joe. Everybody, everybody knows T-Joe, though. Everybody down south knows him, mid-south guys. So, yeah, because he worked know. in those territories as well. And a guy that you also worked with a, a lot uh, during that time, too, and we you told me a little bit of a story uh, when we were off mic uh, about, about Winnipeg and how he didn't get into the border, uh, across the border, was, and a guy you, you, you shared a lot of ring battles with and against, oh. Ricky Rice. I mean, I remember Ricky Rice having, probably since Jim Brunzel, having one of the best pro wrestling best drop kicks. kicks. God, he was crisp. But yeah, and, yeah. I, and I remember meeting him, really nice guy, had a good chat with him one night after a show in Thief River Falls and having him talk and talk with him and Derek Dukes, which we got into. Mm-hmm. But I want to talk a little bit about Ricky Rice because he sometimes gets forgotten because, you know, he didn't yeah. go up and make it to the show and he didn't work multiple years in the WWF. He, you know, he was a guy that was at the end of the territory days for the AWA and worked with, with Eddie, with PWA, that I think should have gotten a little bit more than what he had because uh, he just unfortunate timing with him in his career. But what a talent. And talk about Ricky Rice. And, and I mean, we talked a little bit about him uh, not making it across the border that time for a taping, but I want to hear a little bit more about Ricky the man and what it was like working with him because, again, what a dropkick. Man, the first time I got with that dropkick, it was perfect two feet right, right, right in the temple and right in the jaw. Beautiful dropkick. And, man, I couldn't believe he could. I seen him on TV with AWA, and I was like, until you take it, you're like, whoa, Jack. <laughs> you know, he, he dropkicked me on top of my head one night. That's how, that's how good he was. I mean, on top of my head. I mean, how did you do that? You didn't come off the top rope. But I must have worked with him. I mean, that's where I really came along with, with, with him. Eddie put me with him every show, every show, and he, he was like a, a, the ultimate teacher in the ring. He was a general. He knew what he was doing. Everything was good, and it was all... So I came a long ways. I, I don't know. Maybe I re-wrestled maybe oh gosh, 40 times maybe <laughs> over the years. But, yeah, he's a, he's just a one. Derek Dukes, too, and we're we're still in contact. And I haven't heard from Ricky in a while. He's he's probably working somewhere. I mean, some kind of construction job or something. He's, he's like that. He's not a lazy guy, you know. And, yeah, Ricky, Ricky we had a tryout match um, actually – this was the last time I wrestled him, I think, was in um, uh, was in Milwaukee or Green Bay, Wisconsin. I had a WWF tryout, and we had a we had a great match, really good match, and uh, we both did good. You know, everybody said we did really good there, and um, we both got our stuff in, and the crowd loved us. And I, I was like, man, we're gonna get a job, Ricky. And he's like, man, I know it's really really good. You know, and we've never happened for him or me there. I got six tryouts with uh, WWF and. They had their Indian, they had their guy, and that was that, and then uh, that's why I contacted WCW. Yeah, so, yeah, Ricky Rice, man, he was something else. What a, what a, what a, what a worker. Derek Dukes too. They made a good team, those guys. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, the Top Guns. I mean, I remember, uh, again, Derek Dukes was on that show in 87 for Eddie that I saw up here in Thief River Falls. It was a fun thing because it was kind of a funny memory because I was talking to a guy kind of across the, the little aisle. Oh, there was barely any bit of a, of a walkway. This wasn't like today where you have guardrails and everything. But I was talking to a gentleman. It was this kid and I, we were chatting, and all of a sudden the main event was going on, and uh, there was a run-in, and all of a sudden this guy comes running, jumped over my head. Derek Dukes literally jumped over me and this kid that you know, fellow just a couple young kids talking. We were hunched over. He jumped over, got cleared it perfectly, hit the ring, and helped clean house. Uh, but I, just, I remember, and then I saw him a couple years later in AW, another show, but it was an AWA one up in up in Thief River here. And we were chatting, and I mentioned that to him, and he, oh yeah, yeah I remember that. And, he, and even still today, when we chat on Facebook, every once in a while, I'll throw that memory out, but. Yeah, he was another guy that, again, him and Ricky were really were, were working well together. And there was another guy, too, that, uh, you know, again, he was he had a pretty good spot for Vern towards the end there. But it was just unfortunate that Vern was in the financial uh, situation that he was in because Derek was really starting to show some promise. Man, he, yeah, yeah, he's really he was great talent. And he had, he had the charisma that Ricky did, and Ricky picked up for what Derek lacked. They were perfect together. They were great together. Fun guys to be around on the road in the locker room. It's all around. We had so much fun together. Me and me and Derek, especially, man. Too much fun, brother. <laughs> <laughs> were, were they some of your regular travel partners when you had to hit a few shots, or uh, who were yeah, some of the other yeah, guys? Were there yeah, were there yeah. other guys that you enjoy travel with? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Derek brings when he walks in the dressing room. He brings up. You know, everybody's happy then. You know, that's what he brings to the locker room. And Ricky likes to laugh. You know, he you know he'll. He's 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 like Derek. They just made the perfect combination. When they come in there, it's it's a whole different ball game. And them two guys showed up. You know, it's a it's a it's a party atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> Before I uh, get into chatting about uh, you getting into WCW, I, I want to talk because I mean, you got to work with some really good legends, really cool legends. I mean, you had to work with with Baron von Raschke, uh, you know, also you know, Sheik Adnan L. Casey. And a yeah. gentleman who passed away not too long ago, Masa Saido. So I want you to kind of share some memories first of, of Sheik Adnan El Casey, and then of course of, of with Masa Saido, who was just uh, wow. You want to talk about a solid built gentleman who could wrestle stiff and snug and made it all look real. I mean, when I used to watch him in AWA when I was a kid, man, I was genuinely scared of Saido more than Abdul the Butcher because. Saido mm-hmm. just had that look, and he cut a promo, and it was it was him and Jesse when they were the Far East Connection far, were, were far excellent, East, man. Far East Connection and Adrian, I don't know what happened to Adrian Adonis, but yeah, Masa was man at the wrestling school. That all that Brad Brad would call me, and he said, "Do you want to work out with some Japanese guys that are coming to town?" I was hell yeah, and Masa, that's where I met Masa, and they'd go on, the, we'd go on the mat, and they would eat us alive. I mean, it would be like they'd, they'd be like a cat playing with a piece of knitting or a roll of knitting or something, you know. I mean, that's how Mossford, it was like a tank. He was a tank, and, <laughs> man, I'm glad. I, I mean, he, working with him would have been wonderful, but he, I teamed up with him a couple of times and got over pretty good, to, you know, a lot of Japanese press, magazines and all that. And I seen him in Japan later on, you know, had supper with him, and he was a big star in Japan. Whoa, man, he was big time. And then Hinman and Kenny Patera got in that trouble over there in Wisconsin where they did a couple of years in, in uh, prison and all. And Masa actually didn't have nothing to do with that. Kenny threw a brick through a window over, I don't know, it was somewhere in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And they don't like rosters over there anyway, the law enforcement. <laughs> you know, they always, you know. Um, but, yeah, Kenny threw a brick through a McDonald's window one night. This kid ran up and locked the door, and Kenny was walking up to get him and Masa some food, take it back, and Kenny threw a brick through the Window broke the window. They call the cops and they showed up at his hotel room. Masa opens the door and a female cop um, pepper sprays him and maced him up. And he didn't know. They all attacked him and he headbutted that female cop and broke her broke her bones in her face. But Masa wasn't like that. He was he's a very gentle guy. But man, he they must have beat up about I think it was like sixteen, seventeen cops before they got a hold on them guys. <laughs> Ken Patera and Masa Saido. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. The afraid... world's strongest man at one time, Kenny Patera, man. Yeah, I don't think I'd ever want to get too cross with Kenny. Even today, I mean, <laughs> Kenny, Kenny's Kenny still got his own uh, his own ways, his own surliness to him, uh, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's how he is. He could, he could do that. He could do that, you know. 
He was the first man in the world to lift 500 pounds over his head at Brigham Young University. In the Olympics and all that, he was he was he was the man. And Kenny took me to uh, Alaska with him. It was yeah, what a guy. I mean, man, this guy could drink all night and go all day, and you know, a good friend, great great guy, you know, wonderful guy. You know, big influence. You know, uh, you talk about Masa Saido. I was uh, remembering another uh, Minnesota wrestler who had a, a really good, uh, I guess he was kind of like a, a mentor to to this guy. And it, it, we're talking about another guy who worked uh, with the bouncers down there at Grandma B's. I'm talking about Scott Norton. Scott really had a lot of uh, flattery, really good things to say about Saido in his book about, you know, helping him out while he was in Japan, but not just, you know, letting him, you know, give him a free pass. Saido had some tough love, but he definitely helped to put him over and to help kind of shape Scott's uh, experiences over in Japan. So when I think about Saido, I always think about that, that book and, and Scott's uh, reflections and memories of working with Masa. Yeah. Well, the story there is that, um, Oli needed some new guys down at WCW. It was, I don't know if it was NWA back then, the mid-'80s. And Barry Darso, Terry Sapinski, the warlord, um, Road, Warrior, Road Warrior, I think it was Hegstrand and, and Joe, um, Animal, and Eddie, and a bunch of tough guys. You know. And Oli said, I want you, you, and you, and you. Rick Rude was one of the guys there. I had quite an experience with him on the first night on the road. I'll get to him later if you want. But, yeah, sure. that's that's how them guys got in. They showed up at, at, at the bar, and Eddie was the bartender, and these guys were the bouncers. And it, things got pretty wild there at times. Big Scotty Norton. I mean, this guy, you don't mess with this dude, man. <laughs> nice guy and everything. Yeah, yeah. Scotty but, yeah. was was so just a solid build. I mean, that was a guy he leaned up a little bit, but he was always just I mean, he he was kind of like had that build, like almost like a Masa yeah. in, in, in sort of ways too. I mean, just stylistically and, and body proportion. I mentioned Sheik Adnan Al Casey. He did some shots as well, uh, for, for Eddie and uh, you know, of course with Vern. I mean I mean, when you think about early eighties AWA, you think about the Sheik's army, but did you have a lot of work uh, time with Adnan when uh, you guys yeah. were doing shots? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah, had a lot of matches with Adnan. He was wonderful. He's the one that got me my first tryout in WWF. He took me straight to Vince McMahon. He said, here's, here's your Indian right here. This is the one you've been looking for. And um, I did really well, and I thought I was going to get hired, but they hired the other guy. And it was the steroid era. You know, I, I wasn't going to do roids, and I just, just I, don't, I didn't need to, I, don't, I didn't think. And, yeah, Adnan, I had a lot of, oh, yeah, a lot of matches with Adnan. And one time he, he, he slipped up or something happened because he was so easy to wrestle, but he was pretty rough too. He was a tough guy. He kicked me. I think he was in Hinkley at the big concert thing there. Johnny Cash was going to be there that day anyways, but he kicked me so hard on the side of the head. And my bone, I hit the mat and that was my, my bad too. And I got a concussion and I barely remember even coming home that day and barely anything, remember anything. But, um, I uh, <laughs> I snuck under the tables where they had Johnny Cash's uh, uh, big steaks and buffet. If I didn't have a concussion, I probably could have met Johnny Cash, but I, I snuck under, the, crawled under these big tables, and nobody was in the room, and I'm like, whoa, there's, this must be for us. So I went and got a pile of ribeye steaks and chicken breast and, you know, whatever else they had there, and I brought it back to the dressing room, and Adnan said, where did you get that? Is it free? And I was like, "Yeah, man, I'm gonna go get some more." <laughs> I got caught the second time, but Adnan was hilarious, man. He's oh man, he he was fun to be on the road with. We did a lot of uh, with the AWF promotion too. He managed Hercules and Mr. Hughes, and I worked sure. with him down there. And he was just fun to be around. He was just all the time. And when Sergeant Slaughter was a um, when he was Sergeant Slaughter's manager. Uh, Sarge asked me, I got it. That was one of my tryouts. I think it was in Savannah, Georgia or Macon, Georgia. One is both. Um, Sarge asked me, do you want to ride in a limo with us? And I'm like, hell yeah. Are you kidding me? So I got to ride with the world heavy world WWF champion and Adnan all the way from wherever we were going. And I mean, there was real heat there to fans because of the Iraq war and Sarge oh, turned, you know, <laughs> and turned heel and man, the heat. We, I mean, we had to get let out of the door by, um, uh, George Steele, all the agents, Blackjack Lanza were covering us. There's bottles throwing, big, big bottles too. One almost hit me in the head and hit George in the head instead. <laughs> <laughs> but as I was like, let's get out of here. You know, he was just hilarious. One night I got him stoned there. He, he kind of heard, pulled something in his back. You know, he never complained, but I said, Adam, what's going on, man? 
I hurt my back, I think, and um, so I, I had some weed and I got him stoned. Man, that was hilarious. That was great. You know, he was he was um, uh, what's his name? His bodyguard. What the hell? Saddam Hussein's Saddam Hussein, bodyguard yeah. at one time. Yeah, I mean, he, he was a star in in Iraq, and uh, Saddam got jealous of him. He was getting too popular, so Adnan had to go to Jordan. He put a million dollars in his Rolls Royce, and this is true. This is all true. I've seen pictures of it. He uh, defected to Jordan or whatever, how do you call it, and then he came over here because Saddam was going to kill him, you know, and he told me all these wonderful stories. I mean, he, he's got pictures to prove it. Andre the Giant and him wrestled in front of 175,000 people in Baghdad, and I seen the, the real black and white clip of the match, and Andre was scared to death because the military was there. They're shooting guns in the air, and that... And um, Andre, um, um, Saddam said, if you beat my man, I will send you back to France in a casket. And he had his gold pistol, solid gold pistol. And Andre was scared to death, Adnan said. And he said, no, you beat me up. You beat me up, boss. He called everybody boss, Andre. And, um, and Adnan said, no, you got to throw me around a little bit, man. Come on. you know. But Andre was scared. All those rifles went off when Adnan beat him and the place went crazy. That was probably the biggest house ever prior prior to ever, maybe. I don't know. That's definitely going to be up there. I mean, yeah. that about Adnan, though, did he ever talk with you about the days when he was first in pro wrestling and when he worked as a native uh, with the Billy yeah. White Wolf character? Yes, I did. Yeah, he, he those are my first um, wrestling boots that he let me use <laughs> for about four years. <laughs> and, um, um, yeah, I'd seen all those pictures of him in Strongbow Champions and WWF and... He was a big star in Hawaii, Adnan. Um, uh, I just the crazy stories I can't really say, but yeah, he he was he was a he looked like Elvis. He looked just as good as Elvis when he was young. I mean, man, I mean, he was a, he he was a believable Indian. He was really good at it. What he did, you know. And yeah. um, man, I, I miss Adnan. He lives in Honolulu, Hawaii now, and he said, "Come on and live with me, Charlie." <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, man, he's just he's just great, man. Okay, we well, don't have. I mean, I'm definitely gonna have to have you come back, but we have plenty, a little bit of time left to talk a little bit about how you got into WCW uh, around the, well, about 1993. I want to talk a little bit about that, getting your foot in the door uh, with that company, because you mentioned uh, the times that you've had tryouts with the World Wrestling Federation. But uh, how was it that you got it? You found your way into WCW. Talk a little bit about uh, getting involved with the company, and and in you know early 1993. Talk a little bit about uh, how you made it in there and uh working your first few matches because i remember where you worked with max Payne, who was another midwest guy but i want to talk about tell us a little bit about your story your wcw story how it all came together oh i remember it so well only i am over to watch and i worked with randy that night here in robbinsdale a packed house at some bar and uh we really killed it man we rocked it and Randy did really good, and I did too. And Oli came up to both of us. He said, "I'm going to try to get both of you in," because I was sending my tapes down there, and he just happened to show up there that night at the at the matches. He, uh, I did really well, and uh, I was laying on the couch about a month later here, you know, after work, and um, I got a phone call. It was like six six in the evening. It was him and Dusty Rhodes on the phone, and I'm like, "You got to be kidding me!" I'm like, "Yeah, this is this is Charlie." He said, "Hey, man, we're going to fly you in. Are you available in a couple of days?" I'm like, "Yeah." I'm ready. And uh, I had the next couple of days later, I went down to Atlanta center stage, worked with Rip Rogers and um, got hired and sent back home. And they said, you ready to move down here? I said, yeah, you know, so I moved down it. I went to, I went and did a couple of TV tapings on Orlando prior to moving to Atlanta. Then I came home and I moved down there in my truck with all my stuff, <laughs> moved down there for, uh, these two and a half years, I think. Yeah. And yeah, you, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you worked, uh, you worked, you actually got a chance to work with paper in pay-per-view. Uh, you, uh, made your yeah. debut, uh, working the fall brawl event, uh, defeating a guy who, uh, ended up kind of doing some of his, his thing in Hollywood, uh, big sky, big sky. Yeah. Seven foot tall guy, man. I hit him right, right on the side of the face with my scissor kick and I knocked the hell out of him. It, that's, the real deal anybody could watch it but the referee kept telling me they want you to dance more because he had earphones and from the back 
you know, whoever dance or dance, I'll try to dance and concentrate on doing the scissor kick because I never, I only did it like two times before, and they wanted me to do that because I did it to Big Max at the TV tape in there in Atlanta. And he was a big guy too, but yeah, I knocked the hell out of Big Sky. I was apologizing, brother. I'm so sorry. He said, "Oh, it's all right, man." But he didn't work for like a year prior to that match. I couldn't understand why. I didn't work with Bobby Eaton or somebody. I didn't say nothing, but why did they put me with this big seven-foot-tall guy who's not in the greatest wrestling shape right now? And he's, I guess he did pretty, or doing pretty well in Hollywood. That's the only time I met him. I mean, I never, but yeah, I nailed him. I got him really good on the side of the face. Jesse was one of the announcers, and he's like, wow, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> and you you mean you worked, uh, you know, you did some stuff. You did some tags. You worked some single stuff. You worked with uh, Ice Train and Shockmaster against uh, Booker T and Stevie Ray, Harlem Heat, and the Equalizer at Halloween yeah. Havoc and stuff. But uh, did you think that they could have done a little bit more with you? Did you find yourself frustrated about you well, know, having well, your role Oli, in the company? Oli, Oli and Dusty got fired. They got demoted. And I didn't know what was going on behind closed doors. None of the boys told me nothing. I didn't know anything that was that Eric Bischoff got promoted to. One day I'll go in there to think, Oli and Dusty think, I'll see you guys next, whatever, whenever we're going to be back or whenever. And um, then Eric Bischoff's in the front of the TV screen in this room and everybody's sitting in behind him and Ole and Dusty are sitting in the back looking, you know, like what, you know, what's this guy doing with, with everything. And, um, Eric had his favorites. Uh, he's a, you know, he's a nice guy and everything. And he was overwhelmed by Hulk Hogan. He gave Hogan the keys to the vault of Dallas page, got to write his own scripts. You know, that the, the, Hogan's career was done until the Montreal screw job happened. And that, that got people into wrestling again. So, after Oli, Oli got fired, that was it. I wouldn't go back to the wrestling school. It was a whole different scene. Dallas was too much influential and too. It just, you know, it's you know, I ain't got nothing against him. Good for him, you know. But I can go into detail about him. But he should have stayed as a manager. But any, he thinks he's that good. He wasn't. I, was, I spent time with Jake the Snake down in um, Gainesville, Texas. I lived with Jake's dad for a couple of years down there, teaming up. Me and Sam were team partners and. Spent a lot of time with Jake, and Dallas would call him like five times a day, six times a day. What do I do here? What do I do here? You know, he 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 wanted to do be this, and he he made so much money. But he was the last champion going, and the ship went down, and they ran that place, and then the company Bischoff, Hogan, him, and then the guys that Bischoff took care of, they they destroyed that place. And what bothers me is that they wanted me to do this whole complete other thing, and in in a cartoon business, yeah, I could see that. But, you know, I I wouldn't do some of the stuff they wanted. I said, I'm not doing that. I'm not making fun of natives anymore. I'm, I'm just embarrassing watching myself do this on TV in front of my native people. I'm making fun of them on cartoon. And me and Bischoff had some pretty heated conversations. You know, he said, well, you're in a cartoon business. I said, I'm not a cartoon. I'm not a, I'm not a mascot. I'm not. I'll, I'll do. Let me just be like Wahoo. Simple. I mean, I'll do what Wahoo did. I can handle that. Well, I was a good buddy of mine. We talked extensive, you know, all night one time on the phone. So, yeah, man, Bischoff took over, and that was the, pretty much the end for me. And, you know, I, it's been, I've had a couple of meetings down there at Turner Broadcasting in his office with him, and Dallas Page, three times he was there, every time, sitting outside his office, writing his own scripts, writing, here's how much money I want. So it's whoever was friends with Bischoff at the time. And, but, yeah, it was, it was, it was embarrassing, you know. This guy didn't know nothing about nothing, Eric Bischoff. And the, you can watch Bret Hart's thing about what he says. Any of the boys, uh, watch any of the boys. And then he does this interview, and I, after I won my lawsuit, I sued him for, they didn't give me my money they owed me, And first of all. They didn't honor my contract. If they would have gave me my 130, whatever it was, 120 grand, I would have been fine. Okay, I'll, I, I'll see you guys later. But they wouldn't give me my check, so... Oh, everybody else got their check. I didn't get mine. I signed a guarantee, guarantee contract, and I had like a oh god, a year and a half, maybe a year on it. And Bischoff, I got a, I got hurt on a pay per view with uh, Big Van Vader, who you know went through Brad Ring in school, and um, I think he really intentionally hurt me that night because I just didn't like the feeling in that dressing room, you know. And uh, it was in New Orleans, and he hit me right in the face right off the bat. And he had my whole chest there to hit, and he hit me right. I mean, it was like 80 miles an hour getting. And I, that's the first time I've ever been really knocked out 
where everything went white and everything kept coming, slowly coming back. And he was a bully. I seen him hurt so many guys, you know. And but you know, it, he was. Paul Orndorff told me when I came back from that match that night, he grabbed me from the curtains and he said, "Come here, come here, come here." And he said, "I'll get this big bully. I'll get this big fat bastard back for you." I said, "Don't, don't let this ruin your career. Don't let your you got a lot of talent, kid." He said, "Don't let this ruin you." And yeah, and I wouldn't shake Leon's hand after that. You know, I wouldn't. I had nothing to do with him. I just, I, 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 you know, Stevie Ray's actually saved my ass that night. He, um, Vader come after him too, and and Stevie hit him with an uppercut right underneath the jaw, right above me. Like they were fighting right above me. I was still kind of unconscious a little bit. And Big Stevie and Cactus Jack come in the ring. He said, "You okay? You okay?" And I'm like, "Man, I don't. Yeah, yeah." So Cactus gave me some stuff, you know. He said, "Dude, you know, I just take, dude, take whatever you want." So Cactus worked with me, but Leon, he just he was jumping on me and squashing me and just intentionally trying to hurt me. And he crippled a couple young kids at TV tapings that I didn't like, you know. I oh man, I didn't like this bastard. So that was their man, and Orndorff did get him back and beat the crap out of him and twice, twice, and within a half hour one day at TV. Because Leon just thought he could just bully people, and Paul Orndorff did get him back. And I got a phone call from uh, Hegstrand, um, Road Warrior Hawk, that day. And I talked to Rick Rude, too, and they said, well, Orndorff got him back for you. <laughs> so there was it was building, and uh, I, I don't know if it was just because of me or what happened between them, but Orndorff said he was going to get him back, <laughs> and he did. So I got fired. I sued him. Jesse Ventura agreed to be my star witness. Um, Sid Vicious agreed to be my star witness. Said yes, they did discriminate against him. They wanted to do some ridiculous things that he would not do, and he stood his ground. Good for him. It was treated unfairly. I thought I was, you know, I. Eric Bischoff does this interview. I I see this podcast. Eric Bischoff shoots on Charlie North this last month, I think, or a few weeks ago. I don't know. And we signed an NDA agreement at that day, and this is where the story gets interesting. Um. That when we they settled right away, I just wanted my money. Jesse told me to go for a million because my career is going to be ruined. I said I just want my money. I want to get on with my life, man. You know. As we were shaking hands, agreeing to 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 our lawsuit, I had the greatest civil attorney ever, Larry Leventhal, great man. He was an American Indian movement lawyer for many years. Look him up, man. This guy was amazing. He tore those guys to pieces when we went down there for um. I don't know what you call it when you meet with them. Depositions, depositions. Yes. He he ate Eric alive, and they, Eric knew right away that we better settle with this, giving this kid what he wants, man. Because they would, I would have got more money if they brought it here to St. Paul, and I didn't, I I didn't deserve all a million dollars. I didn't, I didn't want a million dollars. I just want to get on with my life. As we were shaking hands, this is amazing. As we were shaking hands, as I was shaking, there was one female attorney there, and they had four other guys, I mean, dressed, you know, $3,000. So these are some powerful attorneys trying to come in there. And Larry, Larry just ate him up, man. He was, <laughs> anyways, we were shaking hands. I'm shaking hands, agreeing to this. I signed this agreement, and I can't talk about this anywhere. And they did, too. The, the Eric Bischoff signed this agreement. You can't talk about this. I don't care. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to cry and moan and you know, and he's about anything because as I was shaking her hand, my daughter was born, my my little girl. That's a pretty good trade-off in my mind. That was that was God's telling me that you did the right thing because I struggled with that for a couple of years. You know, I'm like, did I do the right thing? This is embarrassing. I'm getting a bad rap. Yeah, it was. It, it, that, that, if Eric didn't fire me, I never would have had my my baby girl. Oh wow! That so, was 1996. Yeah, as we were shaking hands, that's I was so confirmed after that that this was the right thing. What a trade off! Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? We've just uh, right at the, we're sitting right at the top of the hour. I can't believe how fast this hour went because you know what? We could do this again because we only got made it up to WCW. We still have a few <laughs> more chapters of your life that we'd get into. We haven't even got into Sam Houston. So I would like to have you come back maybe sometime next <laughs> month here uh, or maybe sometime in, uh, towards the end of September, maybe early October. And we can yeah, get together Sam for part Sam two. Sam will come on here. He'll call in. He'll call in. He's a, he, we've got some... <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. We've got some stories. <laughs> yes, yes. Let's let's uh, try to get something coordinated because we 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 t- hey. we'll chat on Facebook, of course, uh, in in Messenger. Try to get something. Uh, if get a hold of Sam, we've had him on the program before. We've mentioned oh, you. Really? Yeah, we've mentioned you. Uh, we, he talked about it, a little bit about his experiences in Minnesota here, but he said, you know, I'd love to have you guys come on and, and chat together <laughs> because uh, again, this is another situation like with you or maybe Randy and, and some of the PWA guys where I'll just yeah. throw, I'll just try not to get in the way and give you the question and let it go but I think I think I think we should make this happen because this was a lot of fun Charlie and I I really think I I would love to have the listeners hear more of your story so let's let's work out let's put let's put this on pause and maybe do okay. something here in a few weeks and uh, mm-hmm. we'll get something organized if, if you're okay with that hey man yeah I'm fine with that I, I want I know this goes to Red Lake and I wanted to all these years, I wanted to tell my true side of the story, and I wasn't going to make fun of my people or any Native American, you know, in a cartoon business. So, no. anyways, yeah, take it. I thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. Red, you know, Red Lake. Um, I'm. I love my home. My home. That's my home. That's where I feel the best, and I'm. The, I'm that's where I belong. For Charlie Norris, I'm Glenn Broggett. This has been Rasslin' Memories Then and Now.